And then I dug a little deeper. I did a few Google searches. Then I figured out that we were renting the computers from the founder's sister. And we were renting the space from his mother. You know, not this guy, but his partner, right? That incensed me. So essentially what he was doing was he was simply taking a chunk of change and putting it into his own pocket. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To reduce risk in your life, go to myworstinvestmentever.com today and take the risk reduction assessment I created from the lessons I've learned from more than 500 guests. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guests, Mahesh Murthy. Mahesh, are you ready to join the mission? Oh, yes, I've failed so often that I, you know, I just should have been featured in all 500 of those. But yeah, happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. You know, you, you said the same thing that everybody says is that I got so many, I don't know which one to choose from. But I always tell people, well, pick that story that really has a lesson to it. So there we go. I want to introduce you to the audience. Mahesh has helped launch Amazon, over 60 startups, a few hundred brands, and a few satellites. He's a marketer, entrepreneur, and investor. As a marketer, he worked on Amazon, Pepsi, and Nike. He helped launch MTV and its rival, Channel V. He founded an ad firm named Pinstorm, and he wrote ads, including Asia's best ad of the decade. As an entrepreneur, he failed in his first three ventures and is taking a company public soon and has taken another into space, Asia's first private firm to launch satellites. As an investor, he has run three venture funds and was voted India's best VC of the year twice. So, <laughs> wow, take a minute and fill in a little bit more, Mahesh, about the value that you bring to this world. You know, I, I tell you the value I don't bring. I have no formal education, Andrew. I'm a high school dropout. So the value I bring is, I think, the point of view which comes up from the ground, which isn't necessarily taught in any MBA school that I know of, but that I've hired people from or that I've funded people from. So I'm a bit of a marketer, a bit of on-ground truther, so to speak, as in, you know, I've been selling stuff and been walking the streets since I was 17. And I generally take all theoretical knowledge and projections and put it in a bullshit meter right up against, look, I've been there, I've done that, I've sold to these guys, that doesn't seem quite right. So I think that's the only thing I bring here, which is a healthy disrespect for what is taken to be common sense or what is taken to be uh, well-known so-called facts. So I'm the, in some ways, the non-MBA or the, yeah, the other voice in the room, the uneducated yokel. That's who I am. The anti-MBA. Said it, man. <laughs> I like it. It's interesting because one of the, the people I studied with was a guy named Dr. W. Edwards Deming, and he was saying that, you know, MBA is teaching it all wrong. They're teaching people the wrong way to manage people. They're teaching people to just focus on numbers and set targets and all that. And people, many young people are getting lost in this stuff. And they think that doing a good job means, you know, setting up KPI, key performance indicators, and then kicking everybody's butt. And they just miss so much of what really, really works in motivating people and getting people, you know, excited about your ideas. 
Yeah, that and I think the other thing about MBAs are the education kind of is all about peer grouping. What's the other guy doing? You know, what's his starting salary? What's my starting salary? What's his theory? So the entire thing is about, well, I need to fit in and I, do, I need to slot myself and be in that cohort. So it's about blind thinking and often, you know, it's like, what's the other guy getting for his startup? What is his valuation? That should be my valuation. He bought a BMW 5 Series. I can't make do with a 3 Series. I need a 5 Series, so on and so forth. So it's this blind benchmarking of senseless metrics, whether it's personal or business. That's kind of, you know, because like you said, it basically puts a numerical value on everything out there. And often numerical values by themselves don't have any make any difference don't make any sense so i think that's really where even my last lesson came from from people who just blamed you know basically blindly benchmark greed for instance and said well that guy is so greedy i've got to be as greedy as that and mm. anyway back to you so i think that's that's really where it all came from blind benchmarking of meaningless metrics wow that's right that's a great one and i think you know that the lesson too is that when you're so focused on benchmarking against another company, another individual, the big loss to society is that you're just trying to meet or match or a little bit exceed that. And you're missing the huge opportunities that are out there that are going to come from focusing on your customer, not your competitor. You know, and I keep coming up with this all the time. The people who give me all these very complex spreadsheets that says, you know, I've done this extensive consumer and customer analysis, and this is how we're going to win against the others. And, you know, if they have features A, B, C, D, E, I'm going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, and H. And if he's selling at 100 bucks, I'm going to sell at 95 bucks, and that's why I'll win. And it leads me to think, you know, and ask, well, have you even figured that the customer wants F, G, and H? Have you even figured that the customer actually wants to pay less than 100 or is he willing to pay more? As opposed to, you know, just this entire business isn't about, you know, blindly benchmarking as we talked about it. It's about having an insight into customer and saying, well, what is he looking for? What is she looking for? And what is it you can give that others can't or others aren't? As opposed to saying, well, this is what my rivals do. I mean, I keep saying, you know, the best way to defeat your competition is to ignore them and focus on your customers. And if you keep your customers happy, your, your competition will die by But the minute you start focusing on your competition, you're not going to go to anywhere very, you know, for a long, long time. So for the listeners out there, I mean, this already is a great lesson and it's a great lesson. It's a masterclass in strategy, really, because ultimately strategy is about where you direct your energy and where you choose not to direct your energy. And the lesson from this I hear is direct your energy to satisfying and delighting your customer and you'll be amazed at how far you'll go as you continue to develop there rather than trying to set your strategy to be a me too copycat a little bit better than so great masterclass right there in strategy i appreciate that mesh so now it's time to share your worst investment ever and since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be take a minute and fill in a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. All right. So my background basically was that I was lucky enough to be in the US at the start of the dot-com revolution. I, I was with Silicon Valley firm, an advertising firm, one of the early digital advertising firms. Actually, they, they goofed up and made me a board director, etc. They gave me a, a territory to run. And I read about this small, tiny startup in Seattle that had five or six people that wanted to sell stuff online. And I remember going to my board and saying, hey, you know, 
those guys, those are the guys we must handle. And and my partner said, come on, I mean, it's B2C. Internet's never going to happen B2C. That's nonsense. And we've been doing a lot of work with MCA and McDonald's and a bunch of other kind of B2B companies, right? But I really prevailed and I kind of begged and said, no, this is it. I've got to go. This You've got to get this. And finally, they they blessed and said, all right, go meet, meet them. So I, I went over, you know, met this little strapping of a company called Amazon, started working with them. You know, a couple of years later, I had designed, learned a lot from Jeff, who was my direct client. There were only seven people in the company. Fast forward, after that, I decided that the company, my company went public, got acquired. I, you know, had a couple of CEO jobs, was interested, thought I'd kind of come back to India and bring this little e-commerce and, you know, knowledge back to India. So I came back to India and I, and I started, also, I, I learned about angel investing on the West Coast of the U.S. And so my background before that, I was was that I was an advertising guy at Reflector. So interestingly, when I was an advertising guy about 15 years earlier, I was working with a small agency and... And I had applied for a job at a bigger place. And this guy kind of interviewed me and said my work wasn't good enough. But I said, all right. So anyway, you know, 15 years later, I, I was doing some interesting work. And, you know, so I came back to India and who who were to approach me but this guy, my ex-boss, you know. <laughs> and of course, I had a sweet spot for him. I had a lot of respect for him and kind of, was, you know, a little... He was a guy who turned me down and didn't hire me. Anyway, he came to me saying, hey, you know, my partner and I have this very cool idea. What we want to do is we have so many teachers in India and we want to teach students outside India, right? School students and, you know, education. We have good teachers in India. We simply want to deliver the education online. Now, remember, this was 99, 2000. Back then, so I, I was off by, you know, maybe 10, 15 years. Bandwidths were like 9.6 kbps or something of that sort. So nevertheless, I was all very excited and said, okay, this sounds great. Let's create this company to hire teachers in India and teach students outside India. So we started and we kind of figured, all right. And because the teachers in India were teaching to a particular set Indian school syllabus, we said, let's at least start with the Indian school syllabus, uh, no, schools that run on the Indian syllabus outside India. So there's lots of places, including every embassy, large Indian embassy in the world, plus places where there's a lot of Indians, as in the Middle East or East Africa and Southeast Asia, where there are Indian syllabus schools, right? So we focused on them, we hired teachers, and we started. And, you know, my entire thing was I was pretty much hands-off. And every month, that's how's it going? And this guy come in, he and his partner would come back and say, it's going really well. It's going really well. And every three months, I say, it's going well. You know, we will break through soon, we need a little more money. And I put in more money and more money. And I think my, you know, my naivety and my stupidity was that I was a little in awe of this guy who was my, you know, who's senior to me. And I just believed him. And I, all I did was every three months, write another check and said, that's good. Tell me how I can help. He said, no, no, we're doing fine. Finally, after about two years of this in 2000 or 2001, he said, you know, we need a lot of money. At which point I was investing from my own pocket. And I said, let's let's dive into this and look a little. So we went to the office, you know, and it was not my, I believed it was a little uncouth to land up at your investee company's offices and kind of be the investor. But, but we did because it was two years and, you know, we kept hearing promises and, and we, we saw, you know, and oh, Sorry, a small segue. Every time we'd say, look, we're spending so much on renting computers, so much on renting office. Why don't we just buy these computers, right? Back then, you could buy a decent computer for, I'd say, about 30,000 rupees. And we were still paying, at that time, about 
you know, 3,000 rupees a month to rent each computer. So in that sense, we could have bought it within 10 months of the rental we were paying for it. But it was already 24 months. We were still renting. And I'd keep saying, you know, why are we paying for this? You know, why are we paying for this space? You know, we had large space. We had about 20 teachers and we had about, you know, they could easily fit in 2,000 square feet. But we had rented 4,000 square feet. And, you know, those line items for computer rentals and space rentals would just simply, you know, wipe a huge amount of cost out every month. And I kept saying, why are we doing this? And I was told by both, no, no, you know, we just want to be flexible. We don't want to invest in assets that, you know, we don't know anything about. And, you know, we'll grow. That's why, you know, we don't want to take space. You know, we're taking it right from the beginning. So I just bought into all this. And a couple of years later, I said, look, come on, uh, we're not growing. We're still renting computers 24 months later. we paid for the computer three times over already and we're still renting them and this is about 30 machines and we're renting all this space you know double the space we need and we're not making revenues etc and we went in right and i then uh, met the teachers they're they a very enthusiastic bunch so and so forth I, you know obviously one issue was we were not having sales so i tried to figure out why that wasn't happening Meanwhile, as an aside, I said, okay, you know, I just said, just, just send me all the receipts and so on and so forth, right? And I just want to see all the expenses and they were kind of handed up. Among the expenses, I kind of found this strange thing where the middle name of one of the people signing the receipts for the computers was the same as the middle name of another person signing the rental receipt. So I said, that's very strange. Where Are we renting coincidentally? I mean, is it a coincidence that people that we're renting the computers from are related to the people that we're renting the space from. And then I dug a little deeper, I did a few Google searches, then I figured out that we were renting the computers from the founder's sister, and we were renting the space from his mother. You know, not this guy, but his partner, right? That incensed me. So essentially what he was doing was he was simply taking a chunk of change and putting it into his own pocket, right? The teachers when getting paid, he was making sure he was getting paid hand over fist because literally you know, two-thirds of the running cost of the company was this computer rental and the space rental. So he he was paying himself rent via his mother. He was paying himself for the computers via his wife. He was paying himself something else via his sister. And he kept saying, you know, I'm not taking really any salary. And I got incensed because, you know, for me, this was an extraordinary breach of faith. So I went to him and said, is it true that you're you're renting the space from your mother he says yeah well, you know i'm just paying commercial rentals i said but you're renting two and a half times the space and you know you've been taking this money from day one while we've not been able to hire teachers or invest in marketing i said is it true we're renting all these computers oh yeah yeah but you know but we have to do that i said but you know in all this time of all the money that i've given you you've taken 60 percent of the money home personally yourself all right aren't you ashamed of yourself and he got very pissed off. He said, you know what, you know, look at the other guys in other companies, look at how much they're taking home. At least I need to take home this much. And, you know, I'm not just taking it home this way. I'm, you know, it's market prices. Who works at market price? You know, you're a startup and so on and so forth. And there was a really, really long and not very pleasant discussion. And, well, at the end of it, he came and said, oh, it seems like you've lost faith in me. I, I, I just don't want to work with you. I'm going to get out of this company. I said, all right, man, that's that's fine because this is cheating, right? You're just basically ripping me off by simply sending me bills from from related people for things that you don't need. And, you know, the other founder, my the guy who, was, who I had a lot of respect for, I said, look, dude, you know, I expected a little more from you than this. Did you know this is happening? He says, yeah, I mean, he was a bit of a, you know, space bubble guy. He was a creative guy. And said, yeah, yeah, but, you know, it's okay. He's a business guy. And, and you know, the worst thing that happened was he came a month later and said, well, you know, if you can fire him, what base do I have? You can fire me as well. I said, well, it's not firing in the sense he was cheating. And, you know, that's a clear uh, breach of the agreement we've written. 
but he was cheating me, right? And it, you should be lucky I haven't reported him and put him in jail. He says, no, 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 you know, I'm, I'm very insecure now, but because if you can take out that guy, you can take out this guy. And before you take me out, I'm going to leave as well. So suddenly we had this crazy point where we had this startup where 60% of the money had been stolen by one of the founders. The teachers, the poor people who'd left good, you know, tenured jobs were not being paid. We had very little money left and both founders had exited and we were screwed, right? So, so I had this company with no leadership, about 25 staff, no customers, no money. So that's when the horror started. That's when, you know, my partner and I dug in, jumped in, did what we could. We went abroad, tried to find some customers. We did whatever it is. It took about one and a half years. We found a little bit of money, some few customers here and there. We paid the teachers. We slowly let them off. We paid them, you know, pretty much in full. And we developed some content. And about two years later, we sold it for some, you know, I think 2002 or three to another friend's company who was building a education giant. And we got some shares in that company in 2003 or two. And then what was worse was that, you know, while sending money to this guy, I was sending it from one of my bank accounts and he had failed to report it as an investment, right? He had kind of reported it as revenue. So we started getting hit with tax bills because my investment was reported as revenue and the revenue guys came and said, pay tax on that. So it was like a triple whammy, right? So I put money and then I have to pay tax on the money I have put in. So it took a huge amount of time to clear that out. We fought cases in court that lasted for the next eight years. You know, it was a terrible, terrible story overall. But finally, I think in 2017 or 18, 15 years after I sold the shares for a pittance. So, you know, I'd invested something like $350,000, something like maybe $400,000. It went public and I got about $40,000 back. So I, I made 10 cents on the dollar or something of that sort. It went public as in the company that you sold it to that you got shares. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. yeah. The, the acquirer went public and I, right. I, I had a kind of 0.1x return on the entire thing, apart from an extraordinary loss. So it was, uh, you know, my partner and I, would, would we would keep consoling ourselves saying, you know, when we were going through this horror by saying, look, this is a character building exercise. Right? <laughs> but <laughs> and, I've and had enough character it, building. Yeah, by the end of it, we said, you know, my, my muscles are bulging with character. I can't take any more character. You know, I've had way too much character right now. I'll take I money just, now. I, yeah, I just don't want any more character. I'm like, simply, I'm, I'm buff with character right now. So that, if anything, wow. was uh, one of the horror stories. So, yeah, and I have a few more. How would you describe yeah. the lessons that you learn? Oh, gosh, right. You know, of course, you know, the first one was, you know, I always thought that I was a, a good judge of character. And, you know, a reminder to myself, nobody's a good judge of character, right? Even no matter how much you think of yourself. Two, I kind of figured that it's, you know, being hands-off and all is very cool, but it's not very useful. I mean, you've got to be hands-on far more often. In one more company, I saw this happening later on where one of the guys had a particular headcount on his salary sheets. When we went to his office, we found three people on the headcount who were not in the office. And later on, we on inquiring, we found it was his wife, his wife's sister, and you know her brother, right? So again, we shut that company down because yeah, this is a common way for Indian entrepreneurs. I I don't know about Thai or other, you know, siphoning, to, yeah, to siphon money out by putting fake people on the on the payroll. So anyway, so one lesson was you can trust anybody; it doesn't matter. Make sure the paperwork's not a second. Again, the importance of paperwork when it comes to I, I was sending money, and you know, I had no idea that these guys were accounting it wrongly. 
right? They're accounted as revenue as opposed to as investment. So it was a huge tax issue. So make sure your tax stuff is right. Third, make sure there's a second line. You know, if you end up firing the founders, or the founders cheat or steal money, there's got to be somebody else. So you're going to end up running the company. I mean, for two years, we ran a company to do nothing about right? Doing anything we could, spending a lot more money and, you know, in effect, throwing good money after bad. And maybe, you know, in, in retrospect, we could have simply shut it down earlier and just let it all go. And we would have probably come out slightly further ahead, but we we just kept trying to do the good thing. And we were able to salvage, you know, a tiny, tiny bit, 0.1x at the end of the entire exercise. So loads of lessons on, on pretty much a wake-up call for me. I mean, I was then merely angel investing, and that was the road to creating my first venture fund. And so I, I was, you know, once you do this on the ground, you you learn, you just learn a lot better in terms of the tests, the checks and balances you need to do, the paperwork you need to do. No matter, you could be investing in your in your best friend, but, you know, you still got to get, have to get the paperwork done. So maybe I'll, I'll summarize a couple of things I take away. The first one is that I basically categorized all the mistakes or let's say six most common mistakes that people make. I've come up with that. And the number one most common one is that they fail to do their research. Number two is that they fail to properly assess and manage risks. Number three is that they were driven by emotion or flawed thinking. But I'm thinking about you, about number four, which is misplaced trust. They just trusted the wrong person and, you know, that was significant. And then number five, I think, also relates to this, which is fail to monitor their investment. And then number six actually relates to because it's called invested in a startup. And I just found so many people that have lost all their money in startups, you know. So the takeaways that I would give, number one, is if you're going to invest in startups, invest in 10 startups. Never invest in one. I'll go beyond. Let's say to 20, right? Statistically, I've looked at this. The numbers start working for you, Andrew. And when you're at the 20 mark, you have a reasonable chance that two or three of them will give you 10x. Another two or three of them will give you two to three X, five will die, and another five or seven will be zombies. If you put it all together, you will end up at 20% of, you know, 15 to 25% IRR, depending on how it works out, right? So it's a portfolio game. It's like you don't invest in one stock, you invest in 20 stocks, you invest in 20 startups. Sorry, back to you. So that's great advice from a master. And I think for the listeners out there, you know, the next time someone comes to you and say, I've got this great idea and I want you to invest, you just tell them, hold on. I've got to invest in 19 others before I start investing in yours. So commit to investing in 20, you know, I mean, you may be number 14, but I, I can't give you all my money. I need to make sure that my money is divided across 15 to 20 or more startups. So there's a reasonable chance that two or three will work out. Look, if you knew which two or three would work out, we would never invest in the other 17, <laughs> but we don't know, right? So hence you have to roll the dice 20 times and then two or three will come up success. Yeah. The other takeaway is... Something that I tell, like I do, a, one part of my business is an outsourced CFO where we basically just help companies, particularly that are struggling to get their accounting and finance in order and all that. But what I've realized now after my own experience investing in my own businesses and the like is this, have monthly full financial statements, balance sheet and income statement, and have a monthly meeting to review them. If you do this, almost all of the problems that you're going to face can be resolved because you would start saying, wait a minute, why is this revenue booked when we didn't have any revenue? Oh, wait a minute. So you're booking the, the capital influx into the company as revenue? No, that's got to stop now. 
and what are these expenses, you know, and that type of thing. So you can solve a lot of problems. And I know that the thing is, is that we want to trust people and we want to say, you know, they know what they're doing and all that. No, they don't. Most entrepreneurs know nothing about accounting and finance and they just put it aside. They think that they can just do it later and they accumulate an absolute mess and undoing a mess that has happened six months, 12 months, 24 months ago is a huge project. So that's kind of my biggest takeaway. And for everybody out there, for your own business, for businesses that you're investing in, get those financial statements every month. And if somebody goes, no, we just need to have them once a year. We've got this account. And he does, no, for my money is once a month. Anything you would add to that? Well, my thing was, you know, the two kind of modulations of that is I was happy with, you know, once in three months because there was simply not enough business. We didn't have enough money to even pay the accountant once a month. But once in three months is a reasonable check given that it's a low amount of outflow. The second thing is, you know, I couldn't change my character. I can't, couldn't become an untrusting person overnight. So I, I really went from trust to trust but verify, right? So finally, yes, there, so there, there is still that, you know, right brain side of me that says, yeah, I have to emotionally bond and understand what this is about. But I need somebody else. So essentially, I had to do a good cop, bad cop thing. I, I had somebody else in the fund and said, look, this, this is a DD guy. And he, he or she is going to dig and, you know, do the proctology or whatever it is to figure out. Because you can get an invoice, but somebody has to dive behind the invoice to say, who's invoicing? Is that a legit party? Is it a related party, right? Because it's just not the appearance of, you know, putting a number on the spreadsheet, but diving into see, is that number real? Because we got the correct numbers. It's just that those numbers were from, a wrong source, right? Where we're from a related party source, which kind of sort of, and you've got to put both the numbers together with the story saying this person keeps insisting that we need to rent computers and rent more space than we need. And then you uh, voila, figure out that he's renting from his wife and sister, mm. right? When you put that together, you know, it's fraud. So, you know, so it's both of these, you need the soft and the hard sides. And probably if you're an investor, make sure that you have somebody who's hard edged, so you can keep your good cop, you know, smile longer the guy and not necessarily become an asshole or whatever. But you have somebody else on your side who is doing, you know, the deep dive. So those are two, my own kind of slight, you know, yes. views on that. Let me introduce you to my pit bull. Uh, yes, he's really right. nice. Yes. Except he's, when he's yeah, off he, the leash. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we just say, I just say, that's my DD guy, my due diligence exactly. guy. I, I have a DD guy. You know, you, you kind of take down, so that's my DD guy. Don't worry, he's going to look into it. And yeah. later on, they find out that, you know, that person is, that's a pretty forensic exam that person is doing. Yeah, yeah. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Make sure that you don't invest alone. Make sure that if you're investing, that you have a chartered accountant or somebody, an accountant you really dislike, who's been unkind to you because they were so thorough, but get that person on your side working for you, who's able to look at the books and deep into the books as opposed to look at them superficially. That's one that I, I would really recommend. And outside of that, just make sure if, that the company has a second line or a third line because you may be you may end up at a point where if it's a one-person company and that person leaves, there's nobody else. So make sure that there is a, a C team, you know, there's a CXO team of somebody who can take over till you can find somebody else. And in the early stage, make sure that if you have, say, you know, $200,000, Keep $10,000 for each of 20 investments. Don't give, you know, one person $100,000. So make sure that you have the stamina to be able to do that. Or invest in a group. There are angel groups everywhere. I'm sure they're in Bangkok. They're, they're there all over India. Come together and invest in a group. But make sure in those cases as well that there is your pit bull 
DD person whose job it is to go. These things tend to get cleaned up a little as you go, as you get into series A, series B, but not fully. Indian uh, papers are full of entrepreneurs who have raised a hundred million or unicorns who have defrauded their companies of 50 million plus personally. So fraud is rampant in the entrepreneurial space because it's greed, it's rampant. So, so just make sure that you get, understand that there's a bunch of people who are out there who who are taking your money and they don't think it's enough. So they will do whatever it is to rip as many people off of money as possible. So just make sure you don't know who they are. So make sure you put the systems in place so that that doesn't happen to your money. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? To uh, launch more satellites and sell more of them. So we've done four already. I hope to launch another four in the next 12 months. And that's a big business. I can tell you, I spent a lot of time in advertising where you'd spend, you know, two weeks doing a campaign, two weeks trying to sell it to a client. And at the end of the day, probably make five-figure US dollars in fees, so, you know, four-figure for that kind of work. Selling satellites, I wish, I, you know, you sell one, it's you're in, you know, six, seven-figure mark already. So it's just, uh, I've learned the difference between doing products and services. So I'm kind of going through a bit of a change myself. So I'm the advertising copywriter turned satellite guy, whatever, you know, it's a weird <laughs> one. There you go. <laughs> when you look up in the sky, we'll see you. Well, yeah, hopefully not the birds out there. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go up there. So these are communication and observation satellites and there's a lot of fun. I've learned a lot in doing this, in making them. Exciting. Well, listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't yet taken the risk reduction assessment, I challenge you to go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now and start building wealth the easy way by reducing risk. As we conclude, Mahesh, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Trust, but verify. Trust, but verify. What great parting words. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.